Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 12th, 2023. As always, I'm talking to you from the West Coast of the United States in California. Age is in the news these days in America. Lots of controversy, lots of debate about whether uh, a certain Joseph Biden is too old for office. Polls apparently suggest that he is too old. Uh, the White House is pushing back, suggesting that the media is to blame for fixating on Biden's age. Um, a lot of people in the Los Angeles Times, for example, wonder whether Biden will be able to convince people, voters, that uh, he isn't too old or he's perhaps younger than he looks. Uh, it's important to remember, of course, that it's not just Biden who's really old. It's Donald Trump, too. The New York Times, as always, reminds us of that, although I don't know what it is about Donald Trump. He appears younger or perhaps more demonic but it's not just trump and biden everyone these days in politics seems to be old everyone from uh diane feinstein who is not just old but ancient uh but still in congress to mitch mcconnell who is so old that he keeps on freezing like an old computer and of course nancy pelosi she looks young but she's actually in her 80s although she's determined to keep going. One man who's given age its importance, its significance, or perhaps its lack of significance, a great deal of thought, is my guest today. Ken uh, Deitchwald uh, is the CEO and founder of AgeWave. He's given a lot of thought over his life to the significance of age. Uh, he, I think, thinks that for many old people, the, they believe the best is yet to come and Ken has a new book out, Radical Curiosity, My Life on the Age Wave. And he's joining us from the East Bay in Orinda, just over the San Francisco Bay. Uh, Ken, what do you make of our current preoccupation with age in politics? What, what, what do you make of the arguments that Biden is too old to be president or certainly too old to run again? Yeah, let me set the stage. Um... Throughout 99% of human history, the average life expectancy worldwide was under 18. Uh, most people think I'm nuts for saying that, but I want to say that I got interested in the field of gerontology when I was 24, and I'm now 73, so I've been in this beat for, uh, for 49 years. Uh, it wasn't until the 18th, 19th, and then 20th centuries with breakthroughs in medicine and pharmacopoeia and antibiotics and self-care that all of a sudden people started living in mass, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And we're seeing kind of a breakthrough going on right now because, you know, there's the Rolling Stones dropping their first album in 18 years. And they're like in their early 80s. Springsteen sold out his world tour at 73. I got a call yesterday to, to have a podcast with Martha Stewart. And, you know, she's the Sports Illustrated swimsuit model. So, What's happening is that, you know, Indiana Jones is now 81. And uh, I was yeah, thinking I saw, when I saw Top he looked, Gun. Uh, good. He, he looked almost as good as you can. <laughs> I was thinking when I saw Top Gun last year, I thought, whether you like Tom Cruise or not, 
he was 59 when he shot that movie. And I Googled it up and I saw that when Cocoon was made, that little old man that was the lead, Wilford Brimley, he was 49 years old when he was in that movie. So not only are more people living longer and longer and longer, but they're the growing portion of the world's population. We now have a billion people in the world over the age of 60, and that's about to double. But, and as one of your recent shows, you use the word gerontocracy, which is a word that I've been using for decades. But more and more older people are deciding that it's their time to lead, or it's their time to have influence, or it's, it's not just, you know, politics is not just for the young. That brings up some interesting questions. Should a person be able to be removed from office because they hit a birthday? Or should we judge people on the quality of their thinking, on their ability to be decent, on their ability to be mindful and thoughtful? And I was thinking, and then I'll finish my, my answer. I know you grew up in Great Britain. There was a book written in 1882 that you may have never heard of. It was called The Fixed Period, written by a novelist. No, I never heard of it. His name was Anthony... Trollope. And the premise of the book was that on one 67th birthday, they were removed from all public involvement. And on their 68th birthday, everyone was cremated. The idea being that older people had no use, no value. They were a drain. We should most definitely not have them in any positions of leadership or in any positions at all. So, you know, I, I don't like this kind of vitriolic political era where people are being made fun of because they're short or they're overweight or they're, you know, or they grew up in a particular neighborhood or their mom or dad did this or that. Um, I think we ought to judge people not like WrestleMania style, but I frankly feel we ought to judge people on whether they can get the job done. And I think that should be the issue. What has Biden got about him? that could make him a meaningful and important leader at this moment in time versus his age. And I will tell you, as someone like you who travels the world quite a lot, uh, you know, sometimes when you miss sleep for a few days or your nine time zones off your usual one, you kind of flub your lines or you forget the point you're on or you may even forget what city you're in. So I, I don't think that's unique uh, to President Biden, I think we need to be a little more understanding of uh, of a man of that age. But it may be the case that Biden or Trump or Mitch McConnell have got physical issues or psychological issues or cognitive issues going on. And it may be that that makes them not quite ready to be the president of the United States in this challenging moment in time. You know, you showed Rupert Murdoch there. Um, that network takes a lot of shots at Biden for having the, you know, for having him be the age that he is. But, you know, their president, Murdoch, is 92. And by the way, if I if I had a chance to sit down with Warren Buffett and talk investments, I wouldn't pass that opportunity just because he's 92. I think, whoa, this guy knows a lot of stuff. I'm going to take advantage of that. So I think people should be measured on their merits uh, and on their talents and on their capabilities, not exactly their age. You began, Ken, by talking about the way in which, uh, for better or worse, people are living much longer these days. It, it, 
it seems to me as if our biology has changed. I remember when I was growing up in the England of the 1960s and 70s, being 60 seemed really old and it looked old. Uh, even my father, let alone my grandparents, appeared old. These days, something has changed. Is it our diet? Is it our environment? Is it what we're reading? Is it we're working out more, eating differently, having more sex? What, what has changed? I'll tell you what I think, and this is a little bit going to sound odd. Uh, first of all, we do have improvements in health and medicine and environmental controls. So those are all benefiting us. You know, my dad was diabetic, but he lived to 93 because there were medications that he could take. In another era, he would have been gone at 55. But I think the bigger thing has to do with what we think is possible. Uh, you know, you being a Brit, 1950s, Roger Bannister, medical student, broke the four-minute mile. And before that moment, scientists had believed it was simply not humanly possible. When Bannister broke the four-minute mile, all of a sudden, people all over the world started running faster. So when we see mm. Helen Mirren at 78 being wonderful, when we see Martha Stewart in her bathing suit issue, when we see, you know, like I said, the Stones in their 80s uh, playing rock and roll, uh, you know, I'm a big Smokey Robinson fan. I'm 10 years older than you. I think you were born in 1960. I was born in 1950. When I mm. see Smokey Robinson dropping a new album at 82, all of a sudden everybody starts to rethink what you could be at 60, 70, or 80. And I think that's as much of an issue, Andrew, as anything biologic. I think it's about what do you expect? I know my grandparents when they reached their 60th birthday, they were happy to be alive. Their parents had not reached their 60th birthday and they acted like old people and they kind of wound it up and society moved them off to the sidelines. Nowadays, we see a whole lot of 60 and 70 year old entrepreneurs and athletes and actresses and senior Olympiads and just interesting people. And, and by the way, I would, at the risk of, you know, leaning into my own cohort, while I think there's some limits to the boomers, um, there's a whole lot of interesting people in their 60s and 70s and 80s. You know, we, we used to think that the interesting folks were the youth. Uh, but now, I don't know, you sit down next to somebody who's done 60 or 70, turns around the sun, and they've got some perspective. You know, they may even have some wisdom. And they can compare music of one era and another era. And they can think in terms of lessons they've learned. And I was there for the birth of both of my children. And I was there for the passing of my dad and then my mom. And I'm a deeper, more, oh, I don't know. I'm not going to quite say wise, but I've got more perspective now than I used to. And I think that even young people are beginning to take note of that. And they're thinking, okay, not all older people are wise or interesting or colorful, but just because you've had a 60th or 70th birthday doesn't mean you need to go off to the sidelines and start acting like your grandparents. And you get, uh, to, to use your, a, a new word, you get trolloped. Um, <laughs> and you get put, uh, put in the incinerator when you're 67. I don't think that would win many votes for either Donald Trump or, or, or Joe Biden these days. Yes, there's interesting... Uh, we did a, a show with Ken Costa, uh, a, a banker, about the handover of wealth from boomers to Gen Zers. I wonder, 
it seems as if in cultural terms, there's a deep generational divide. Uh, you and I are slightly different ages, but fairly similar generation. Is our generation more confident than the younger generation, which seems much more concerned, much more anxious, much more pessimistic? Um, and might that come out in age as well? Yeah, and I've written about this in, in, in Radical Curiosity. And by the way, all my earnings from this book are, uh, are being donated to Esalen Institute, so it's not about me making money from it. But yeah, I have a lot of thinking and writing about it. And, 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 and let me tell you what I think the answer is. First of all, older people have safety nets. So if you're 67, you have Medicare market value, $13,000 a year. You get Social Security benefits. Average is $18,000 a year. Some people get more. If you're 25 or 30, you don't have any safety nets. On top of that, COVID really knocked people sideways. And I think it knocked young people the hardest, teenagers, children, uh, people in their 20s. Will I ever be in love? Will this ever end? Will there ever be any truth in the world? Will we be eaten up by pandemics for the rest of my life? And, and I think those of us who are older, who have been through ups and downs and successes and failures, have a bit more resilience. The last thing I want to say is that I think that even though I like to use tech, and I'm a tech kind of supporter, and I'm captivated, and I've met a lot of the gurus of that territory. I think it's really jerked around with a lot of young people's minds. You know, and if you're a 19-year-old girl, and somehow folks at one of those enterprises have figured out that if they can get you to return to that site because of FOMO, fear of missing out, what are people doing? Am I pretty enough? Am I doing the right things with my life? Who am I? And if AI starts to kind of screw around with how you interpret information and news, and it makes you toxic, it makes you depressed, it makes you anxious. I think that young people, while being more versatile with technology, are also getting eaten by it. And um, so oddly, at this strange moment in history, while you know, you might have a grumpy uncle or there may be somebody running for the White House who's old and you're not sure if they can handle it. Older people generally, say folks in their 60s and 70s and 80s, have been displaying a level of resilience and fortitude, partly benefited by certain safety nets, <laughs> far more mentally and psychologically secure with themselves than young people are right now. It's interesting, Ken. Yesterday we did a show. You you call yourself uh, an expert on gerontocracy. Uh, yesterday did a um, a show um, with uh, um, a man called Alexander Bathany, um, who is a, a Viennese-based uh, lo logotherapist, uh, a follower of a, a Viennese school of thinking. He's written a book called Threshold, Terminal Lucidity and the Border of Life and Death, which is about that moment as we die and what we think and how we look back. Is, uh, one of the things that concerns me about age in America is young people look, uh, sorry, old people look young. They dress, or certain kinds of old people, certainly, in the Bay Area in particular, Los Angeles and New York, they look good, they exercise, 
They look very healthy. They never seem to look older. But it's just, at some point, Ken, they're going to leave the stage. At some point, they're going to die. Are old people ready to die? Or, or, or do they believe, like, you know, we've had technologists on the show like Richard Young or Sergey Young who believe that uh, we're all going to live to 200, which for the moment is a fiction. So are, are old people... Why I, I take your point on them being in some ways wise and in some ways youthful, but are they wise enough to be ready to die? So I got three answers for your complex question. First, one of the odd side effects of living a long life, and by the way, two-thirds of all the people who've ever lived past 65 in the entire history of the world are alive right now. Mm. So this aging thing is relatively new. Now we often think of new, new is new AI, it's new tech, it's new thinking, it's new stuff for your house. The idea that growing old being a new thing, first time in history for most people um, is kind of a wild thing. I don't get the feeling that as people live longer lives, it makes them more comfortable for their lives to end. I think people kind of get the idea that I might live really long time. You know, I might live to be a hundred. Uh, or even 200. By the way, then there's a whole bunch of people, Gero scientists. And I know Sergey, um, who believe that maybe because of exponential technologies, maybe not this year, but sometime in five or seven or 12 years, there will be breakthroughs so that we can reprogram our DNA to not age, or we can do away with Alzheimer's disease, or we can end cancer. And then for your younger listeners, someone who might be 20 or 30 or 40, in your future, you might have breakthroughs that will allow living to 100 or 150 to become commonplace. Last thing I want to say is that as one of your slides reflected, it's, going to, it's an enormous amount of home ownership among older people. There's an enormous amount of 401ks. There's an enormous amount of money, as you see here, $100 trillion worth of wealth, which is going to come cascading down into younger generations. By the way, it's not going to be cascading equally most demographers and economists predict that it'll be about kind of like a 90-10 split. The yeah, 90% of the money about. 90% of the money will go to 10% of that generation. Now that doesn't mean that if you only get fifty thousand dollars, you're not doing okay. That could be a big boost if your mom or dad had a house and you get a piece of it. But there will be the biggest flow of money between generations over the next couple of decades ever in history. And I'm not completely sure that the boomer generation has given the kind of thought. It's sort of like, don't talk about death or dying. It's an unpleasant subject. And it is. I know my wife and I sit down and redo our will every now and then. It's like freaky. I mean, it's not like a fun thing. You know, you'd rather watch a Warriors game. Then, uh, then think about the end well, of the your Warriors life. usually win, Ken. When you write a will, I'm not sure there are any winners. No, it's not an enjoyable task, but I think the boomers are trying to stay. By the way, we just did a recent study, and by the way, all of our studies at AgeWave, and we've done them now for 25 years, 
are available for free on our website. It's just agewave.com. We ask people, would you rather be youthful or useful who are over the age of 50? Four to one, they said useful. And well, that's yeah, well, they're not going to. Yeah, but that's a you know, the answer to that before you ask it. No one's going to say they don't want to be useful. No, no, I don't see. I don't completely agree with you that people want to have some purpose. You know, uh, for the last decade in America, we have 70 million retirees and the average retiree watch 47 hours of television a week. I think today's older adults don't really know what that's to do with their lives. Yeah. And, you know, only 25% of our retirees volunteer at all. And I think that's a major mistake. Yeah, that is. That's more concerning. We are talking a fascinating conversation. We haven't even got to the heart of the matter yet with Ken Dyschwald, who is uh, a longtime thinker about age and what it's like or what it should be like to get old and wise. Uh, he has a new book out, Radical Curiosity. He's written many books on the subject of age. Uh, we're going to take a short break now, Ken. Uh, and when we come back, I want to talk specifically about your new book, Radical Curiosity. Uh, I just want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, uh, who are sponsoring this show. We're going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back in two seconds. So don't go away, anyone. We're getting to Radical Curiosity after the break. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with uh, Arinda's great thinker, Ken Dyshawal, <laughs> the author of Radical uh, Curiosity. He's a longtime thinker on age and meaning in our lives, written many books. And he has a new book out it's called Radical Curiosity. Uh, Ken, wh why the new book? What are you saying in this book that you haven't said before? Well, it's a different kind of book than anything I've ever done before, Andrew. It's a memoir. And what sparked me to write it was I became really fascinated by the idea of an ethical will, which may not be a phrase you ever heard before. Uh, in most religious traditions, it's believed that when you reach your 60th birthday or so, you ought to craft two wills. One is your material will. Here's the stuff I have. Who gets what uh, when I pass? But then more important is an ethical will, or some religions call it a spiritual will. And in that, you gather the lessons you've learned in your life. What has happened in your life that might be something you could teach your kids or their kids or others? You know, it's kind of like if, if we were going on a camping trip and there were some people returning from a camping trip, it wouldn't be a bad idea to ask them, hey, are there any rattlesnakes up ahead? Or where's the beautiful place to catch the sunset? Or where's the fresh water? Or are there any good campgrounds where we can stay at night? You don't have to do that. But getting the benefit of another person's life lessons could be valuable. So when my dad passed away, I sat down and decided to 
gather my stories and my life lessons. Now, I have to tell you, having written 19 books and being on the kind of lecture circuit for almost 50 years, when you're on the circuit, you get to meet other authors and speakers. So, you know, whether that's President Reagan or Jimmy Carter or Arnold Schwarzenegger or Betty Friedan tutoring me on feminism or Maggie Kuhn, the founder of the Grey Panthers, or all kinds of interesting and crazy people have become my friends and my mentors. And so I shared a lot of the lessons that they taught me about failure and success and what's the value of money and what's the importance of your relationship and how to make things work in your life. And when you fall down, how to get back up again. And so what I attempted to do was to gather the most interesting lessons and stories, tough and fun, into a book. So this is a memoir, and I put it out during COVID. But then my publisher said to me uh, about a year or so ago, hey, a lot has happened over the last several years. Would you be willing to rewrite the book and put out a version that included your views now that you're a bit older? And also, I know he said to me, you've been through some wild and crazy stuff. Would you include that in some new sections? So this today is actually the pub date. Uh, and Radical Curiosity can be bought anywhere books are sold. Uh, Ken, you, you mentioned the rattlesnakes and the sunsets, and we're relying on the people coming back from the, the hike, and we're just about to go up the mountain. We're relying on them to, to warn us about the rattlesnakes and tell us about the sunsets so we don't miss them. Tell me about some of those rattlesnakes that you want to warn your readers about that you've experienced in your life. Oh, um, taking risks. You know, I've been sort of a takey, taking risk kind of guy as a businessman, as a dad, as a husband. And sometimes when you take risks, they flop, they fail. And failing is painful. You know, I had a few businesses that didn't make it. I talk about what it felt like in the book. You know, whenever we read about entrepreneurs, it always seems like they're they're succeeding at every corner, but we know that 85% of entrepreneurs fail. So that's a rattlesnake. Another rattlesnake is not taking your relationships seriously. Uh, one of the things that I wrote about in Radical Curiosity is that when I married my wife at 33, uh, we had such a good time at our wedding and we were broke. So we had a little wedding in our home with our immediate family. And then we stayed at a bed and breakfast. And I said to her that night, I said, you know, it's so great marrying you. Would you marry me every year? And she looked at me and she thought she had a nut job on her hands. And she said, you know, people don't do that. And I said, well, we can. You know, people celebrate Halloween every year. They celebrate Mother's Day. They celebrate Christmas. They celebrate Hanukkah. You know, it's like, why not celebrate our relationship? Take a moment each year to get remarried. And my wife said, if we're going to do that, let's do it at a different place with a different religion. So we've had 39 weddings so far. And I would say the rattlesnake of getting your, having your relationship lost in the entanglement of life and your technology and your internet and your money making and your worries about how you look and how you feel, you got to take the time, in my view, I don't know that I would have known this as a 30 or 40 or 50 year old, but I know it now. And, and I'll give it to you in a kind of a cornball expression. When I was young, and I know this is going to sound corny, but when I was young, like say my 30s, 
And I was a pretty, you know, active guy. I'd already written a couple, three books by the time I was 30. So I was a clever young guy. Uh, wasn't wise, but that was kind of clever. I thought the things that mattered the most were the nouns. A person, you know, your house. And then when I got a little older, I got a little more zen. And I thought, no, I think the things that matter in life are the verbs. You know, it's the being, not the thing. And I thought, wow, that was brilliant. But then that passed. A few decades later, I realized it was the adverbs that I thought was more important. You know, how you treat other people, how you deal with your life, you know, the energy you bring. But then as I grew a little bit older still and past my 65th birthday, it just struck me that what matters most in life are the punctuation points. Taking a moment to tell a best friend, hey, I love having you as a friend or giving your kids a hug or taking a moment to take a deep breath and realize, you know, how far you've come and what might be possible ahead. So a rattlesnake there would be letting your life just kind of roll along and, 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 and not, not take more seriously the importance of stopping and thinking and reflecting and sharing the good stuff with people that matter. Uh, you talked about risks earlier. We did a show yesterday with Amy Edmondson, uh, an expert on failure and risk-taking at the Harvard Business School. Her book is long-listed for the FT Book of the Year, Business Book of the Year. She believes in something she calls smart risks, both professionally and personally. Would you agree with that? Yeah, there could be dumb risks, you know. I watch my kids sometime and I think, whoa, what's, what are they doing? Uh, but I've, made, I've taken some dumb risks too. But yeah, there can be smarter risks. Do a little homework, talk to some mentors, get some perspective, get some... Uh, you know, I'm reading a Dalai Lama uh, book right now. And he says the question you should ask yourself before any decision is, will this make me happy? And I thought, well, that's an interesting thing to think about, because normally we think about risks in terms of risk reward. Will you make money, lose money? Will it succeed or fail? And that other theme of contentment and happiness is one that I've begun to think more about at this uh, stage of my life. Maybe a little late, but um, I'm on it now. Let me say one other thing that, you know, I've named the book Radical Curiosity, and we pay a lot of attention to abundance and success and achievement. What I wanted to emphasize, and I'd like to share with your listeners and with you, and I think that this is what drives you a lot. I've been listening to your podcast, and first of all, it's just fabulous. And second oh, of all- Ken, I'm six, sure you tell all the girls that, Ken. <laughs> well, I know your wife works at Google, so she could Google you up and uh, yeah, see what you're up there. to, so, so be careful there. I would also say that two things. First, curiosity should get a little more airplay. You know, not thinking that you know everything and asking deeper questions and going into territories that maybe you never looked at before should be more important piece of our lives. And last, life used to be kind of linear. You know, you did this for a while, you went to school, you had a job, one kind of job, and then you retired and then you passed away. Now in this longer life, it's an opportunity to kind of throw all that up in the air and maybe reinvent yourself at 40. You know, maybe at 50, if you're widowed or divorced, fall in love again. 
you know, maybe write your first novel at 75. Uh, you know, maybe try to become a podcaster and it may turn out to be the love of your life. Is there something you haven't done that you still think you'd like to do? Oh, there's so many things I haven't done that I still want to do. I haven't played my guitar for 40 years and it's sitting right beside me, actually, in my office here. I'm thinking about maybe getting back to music. And uh, my wife and I wrote a children's book, Gideon's Dream, about a caterpillar who dreams of transforming himself and he turned himself into a butterfly. I'd love to make that into a Broadway show. Uh, I'd like to write a science fiction novel about breakthroughs and longevity. Um, I've got some studies that I still want to do. And I wish my kids would have kids so that I could see when, what it feels like to be a grandpa. Because uh, friends of mine who are of this age, you know, by the way, September 10th was National Grandparents Day. And I'm sure none of your listeners knew that. Yeah, I didn't you know, know it, and I'm always looking for special days to. We don't we don't pay head. attention to grandparents, but a lot of people are grandparents, and they they just love it, you know. So, there's are a you a grandparent? Do either of your kids have 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 kids of their own? My kids do not yet have kids of their own. There's kind of there's like murmurs going on, but not yet. Finally, Ken, I'm going to actually introduce this uh, to the show in October, but I thought we could do a little preview. With you, we're going to work with Substack and suggest that if people want to pay for this show, they can get some good advice from my guests. What piece of advice would you pay for that you didn't have in your life? What have you learned that's of real value, that's worth money, real money? Can I mention more than one? You can have as many as you want. So when I was 24 and I first started working with older people, I made up an exercise. I said to them, hey, take a peek of graph paper and graph your life. And they did. They came back the following week to the meeting and they had graphed their life. You know, lines went up and down. And I thought, whoa, I'm 24 and I got a bunch of 80, 90 year olds. And they're looking back at their life and they're realizing they wasted 25 years in a marriage that wasn't any good. Or they had the wrong job. You know, some young version of themselves picked the job and they did it their whole life and it never gave them any satisfaction. And I thought, wow, here I am, 24 years old, getting life lessons from people who have lived this journey. I, I wish that I could have gotten some of that shared with other people because it's driven my life. You know, I don't want to look back and be regretful. Second thing that I would pay for is we got a problem, particularly in the United States. We have our lifespan, which has been elevating. You know, it's our life expectancy. But in the United States, there are 39 countries in the world that live longer than we do. So we're, we're pretty mediocre. And we spend more money than anybody else in the world. But even worse, there's what's called health span, which is an idea I've been working with. So it's not the number of years you live, it's the number of years you live with relative health and ability to do things and be whoever you want to be. And we rank 68th in the world. And we have only 66 years of health span. So a piece of advice, almost like a health ways, it may be from a person or from AI, 
if I could program in how to get my car from here to there with the least amount of energy and the shortest amount of time, bearing in mind traffic and weather and road conditions, why can't I have the same kind of thing, advice, to know what should I do to live with the greatest amount of health and vitality for the longest period of time? Because most of us, we don't know what to eat. We don't know when to exercise. You know, we don't know what effect our mind is having on things. And so getting good advice about that. Last, money. 80% of the American population is pretty close to clueless about how much money they're going to need to live a long life. Clueless. You know, maybe our grandparents didn't worry about it because they were frugal, grew up in the shadow of the Depression and were always savers and they didn't live very long and, you know, benefits like Medicare and Social Security got the job done and they had might have had pensions. Boy, we got a lot of people turning 50, 60, 40 today who haven't saved anything, you know, who haven't really thought about their future self. It's like a science fiction novel almost. If I make some money this week, I got to take some of that money and make my life good this week, but I got to put some of it aside to grow so that the, the me in the future has got some financial resources. I've seen a lot of people who run out of money in their later years and they're not having a good time of it. So getting really good financial counsel from someone on top of how do I find purpose in my life, young as well as along the way, how do I reinvent myself? And um, how am I going to pay for this? Those areas are particularly important. And I would also say, at the risk of being a smart ass, um, I know a lot of important people listen to you. I cannot believe that this health span versus lifespan issue, where we spend so many years in pain and suffering overly medicated, unable to work, unable to enjoy uh, doing things. And this question has not been asked of one person running for presidential office for the last 20 years. What would you do if you think you want to be president, whomever is listening, to have our health spans better match our lifespans? And how are you going to go about that? By the way, 